the voice of an aggrieved and beleaguered David. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent, for people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord that he may blot out their name from the earth. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment. It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be a cloak wrapped about him, like a belt tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your unfailing love. Let them know that it is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. While they curse, may you bless. May those who attack me be put to shame, but may your servant rejoice. May my accusers be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great thong of worshipers I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. The word of God for the people of God. So, <clears throat> for those of us who, who follow in the way of Jesus, we follow someone who said to pray for your enemies 
and bless those who curse you. But we live in a world where it's easy to make enemies. It's easy to be socially, politically, ideologically opposed to someone else. And in our day and age, we're not just opposed to someone that we disagree with, we're often outraged by them. And sometimes we let our anger turn to contempt or rage or disgust or hatred. And we make them an enemy. But it's not just politics and ideology that creates this kind of enemy making. We also just live in a world where people do annoying things. Like chew their gum too loud or sneeze in their hand and then open a door with the handle. It's easy to make enemies. We live in a world where people do you might even say stupid things, like switch lanes without using a turn signal, or use their phone on speakerphone in public. We live in a world where people do harmful things, like disregard any responsibility for caring for God's good creation, or lie and gossip about you behind your back, while smiling to your face, it's easy to make enemies. And then we live in a world where people do evil things, like enslave, sell, or traffic people, human bodies for the point of sexual exploitation, or like going to schools, or grocery stores, or churches, or public parades, and open fire on innocent people, on children, on the elderly. It's easy to make enemies. When we encounter annoying things, stupid things, harmful things, evil things, done to others or done to us, it ought to be obvious to us in our anger that things aren't as they should be. They aren't as God in his creative goodness designed them to be. And it's actually right to be angered at this. But what are we supposed to do with all of our enemy making anger? What are we supposed to do with it? Imagine you're in a prayer meeting, okay? And the leader says, uh, who do you want to pray for today? Okay. Who do you want to pray for this evening? Well, one person chimes in. Can we pray for Cynthia? Sure, who's Cynthia? Uh, Cynthia is my great aunt. Okay, what should we pray for Cynthia? Well, her apartment has thin walls, and her neighbor has a cold, and they keep sneezing, and it's really annoying her. Okay, let's pray that Cynthia's neighbor's cold goes away soon. Who else? Can we pray for Eric? Sure, who's Eric? Well, Eric is my youngest son. What do you want to pray for him? Can we pray that he starts eating more fiber? 
Well, well, he's been super constipated again. Okay, we'll pray for Eric again. Anyone else? Yes, can we pray for Ben? Who's Ben? He's my coworker. Oh, sure. What do you want to pray for Ben? Uh, can we pray that his children would become beggars and that his mom's sins are never forgiven? It'd be an interesting prayer meeting. How would you, resp- you, know, how would you respond to this? Th- this is the prayer of Psalm 109. Of course, I'd be shocked to hear someone ask for prayer like this. And without much time in the Psalms, I'd probably assume this person hasn't really read much of the Bible. But of all three prayers, the third one is the only one that's literally biblical. Right? Now, I'd be shocked to hear this kind of language because it's mostly been omitted from our public speech about God. A lot of denominations use something uh, called the lectionary. I don't know if that's familiar to you or not at all. It's this set of scriptures that are read every Sunday throughout the year. And if you read through the set scriptures in this lectionary, you read through the whole Bible in three years. So a lot of churches, more historic denominations, Episcopalians, Roman Catholics, Lutherans often, they use these kind of lectionaries. Well, what's interesting is there's a different psalm read every Sunday, and in most lectionaries, they omit the kind of psalm we just read. They're just not in there. Or any of the verses that sound angry, they're just not in there. And most hymn books will include the psalms, kind of in the beginning of the hymn book, or different songs about the psalms. And most hymn books omit these kind of angry, cursing psalms, or they at least edit out the problematic lines. So it's not your fault if you haven't been exposed to this kind of prayer language because the church throughout history hasn't known exactly what to do with this kind of thing. This kind of psalm that we read, scholars use the word imprecatory, an imprecatory psalm, uh, as in an imprecation, a curse. It's a cursing psalm, they say. They fall under the category of lament, and there are plenty of them in the psalms. This type of imprecation or cursing occurs, I'll name a few, Psalms 5, 6, 11, 12, 35, 37, 52, 54, 58, 69, 79, 83, 109, 137, 143, 149. There's a lot. Okay, let's play a game. Enough of me reading numbers. Let's play a game. It's called, Is This Prayer Biblical? I will put up a short little prayer You're actually going to play. Raise your hand if you think it's found in the Bible. Leave your hand down if you don't think it is. Let evil recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. Is this prayer biblical? (laughs) May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Is this prayer biblical? Yes. 
Okay, we'll continue. This one, and I don't know about this. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Biblical? Not biblical. It's in Psalm 58. Okay. May they be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. May their path be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Bible? Bible. Make them like tumbleweed, my God, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest or flame sets the mountains ablaze, so pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Biblical? I think you're getting the point, right? I, I, I'm, I'm being tricky. Here's the last one. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them on the rocks. Oh, biblical? It is. It is, it is, it is. What on earth do we do with this kind of prayer? People haven't always agreed. Um, some people have said just like, ignore it. Maybe take a Sharpie and put an X on it in your Bible. Or that's too intense. Just put a little sticky note over it so you don't encounter it. Um, or you can kind of gaze over it, but don't pray it out loud. What on earth do we do with these? Should we let these words land on our lips? Is this the kind of thing a Christian can pray? What on earth do we do with this kind of prayer? We pray it. What are we supposed to do with all our anger, right? Early on in the sermon, all, all this anger at all that's wrong with the world. What do we do with it? We pray it. This series began with the idea that God wants all of us in prayer. Holding back what we really think or feel and praying as we think we should is actually detrimental to a sustainable, enjoyable, and effective prayer life. It's like the quote I keep coming back to by John Coe and Kyle Strobel. If you want a boring prayer life, spend it trying to be good in prayer rather than being honest. One of the things the Psalms show us is that nothing should be off limits in prayer. There's no language that God can't handle. When we realize that we can bring our whole selves, all of us, to God in prayer, we'll start praying in a truly transformative way. Do you want transformation in your life? Well, real transformation always only occurs when we address what's actually going on in our lives. What we ignore will not be transformed. 
Dr. Dan Allender, who's a psychologist, and Tremper Longman, who's an Old Testament scholar, they've written a few books together. They have one called The Cry of the Soul. And in it, uh, they say this, which is very interesting. Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. Anger can be a gift that brings us into contact with what's real. In contact with reality. In contact with what's actually going on in our lives and in our world. Which is always where we meet God. I was helped a lot in my thinking about anger by Brene Brown. Um, there's some work that she's done in a recent book called Atlas of the Heart, where she talks about all these different emotions. Um, I'm not naturally uh, super in touch with my emotions, so being able to read someone else's name and describe all these different emotions is very helpful for me to be able to identify those in my own life and uh, speak in a way that's hopefully more helpful for all of us about them. So in it, she says, uh, she gives a, a nice little definition of anger. Anger is an emotion that we feel when something gets in the way of a desired outcome or when we believe there's a violation of the way things should be. And I really like the second part, a violation of the way things should be. Because to me, that points to the necessity of a God. Anger really only makes sense to me if there is a God. Because things can only be violated if there's a right way, a created way, a designed way that they're meant to be. So I think every time that we get angry at injustice or unfairness or the wrongness of something, we're presented with an opportunity to either cry out to God who is justice and fairness and righteousness. Or, and this is where anger often turns to sin, rather than turning to God in our anger, we can seek to make things right by our own standards in our own way, right? We can play judge and jury, and we can even play God. And that's always sin. See, anger takes us somewhere, either to God or away from him. Brene Brown, again, puts it this way. Anger is a catalyst. Holding on to it will make us exhausted and sick. Internalizing anger will take away our joy and spirit. Externalizing anger will make us less effective in our attempts to create change and forge connection. It's an emotion that we need to transform into something life-giving. Courage, love, change, compassion, justice, unquote. I'd argue prayer, connection with God. Anger is meant to be a catalyst. And in the Psalms, anger is a catalyst for prayer, for connection with God. 
Is that how anger functions in your life? I want to ask a few sort of diagnostic questions for you about anger to help as we dive into Psalm 109. So first, do you get angry? How often? How severely? What makes you angry? The economy, sports, people, politics. What is it that makes you angry? And then what do you do with your anger? Do you suppress it? Which often can feel like trying to hold a balloon underwater. Just, keep, just stay under there. It just keeps coming back up. Do you deny it? I'm not angry. It's all good. God's got it under control anyways. Do you uncontrollably express it? Right? Cursing and yelling, kicking things over, making sure others know how upset you are. They need to feel this anger that I feel. Or do you quietly sort of ruminate on it, letting it take over your thought life, replaying the situation again and again that caused the anger in your head, perhaps imagining different ways you could make it right, different ways you can give that person what they deserve. This one might seem, it's, it's the most subtle. No one else knows what's going on. It's the one that most often leads to actual violence. Letting it linger in your head like that. The Psalms, thank God, invite us into a different relationship with anger. As a catalyst to prayer, to connection with God. And so I want us to look at Psalm 109, to look at some of the movement and direction, the places that it goes David makes it clear from the beginning that this is a prayer to God, right? My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent, for people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues, with words of hatred they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. I am a man of prayer. I am a person of prayer. See, every disturbing word we read in this psalm and the other imprecatory psalms are words that are given in prayer. And when we pray something, when we ask God to do something, we are inevitably placing it in God's hands. Okay. This is the best place, the safest place for any of our anger and rage to be. For any of our thoughts about our enemies to be, the best place is in the hands of God. 
The Hebrew, but I am a man of prayer. The Hebrew there just says, but I am prayer. David just says, I am prayer. My whole life I want to be giving over to God. Verse 5 continues, they repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. So we can see from the opening verses that David is angry because of, in Brene Brown's words, a violation of the way things should be. Because he's saying he was a friend. He offered himself in kindness and friendship and love, and, and, and he received hatred and accusation in return. That's not the way things are supposed to be. That's not the way relationships are supposed to go. David is petitioning God to do something about it. This, this isn't right. I was kind and loving, and they hate me in return. Verse 6. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. So David is appealing to God for justice. God, do something about this. Appoint someone to oppose him. Notice how even early on in the psalm, this is a relinquishing of control. A letting go. Because remember, David, David isn't powerless. He's the king at this point. If he really wanted to do something, he could have. He could have made this person really feel his anger. He could have taken things into his own hands here, but he appeals to God. He appeals to God. Then comes his litany of curses, perhaps the hardest part to hear, because David wishes such cruelty upon his enemy. For the sake of time, I will just read um, verses 7 to 11. When he's tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. In David's best estimation, this is what his enemy deserves. And David is simply praying, God, give him what he deserves. Make things right again. Is this a cruel prayer? Or a kind prayer? I don't know, but what's interesting is that David is intimately acquainted with the mercy and mystery of God. And so he's not just praying this to any God. He's praying this to a God he knows is merciful, which is important because he's asking God to do something that he knows God may not do because God is merciful. He knows that God is just and fair and good and righteous, but also that God is merciful and kind and slow to anger. And these things aren't always easy to hold together. Because of this, praying for your enemies, praying for their judgment, 
is always actually an act of faith because it's entrusting them to the only God who is perfect love and perfect justice at the same time. It's admitting, by praying it at all, whatever you're asking, it's admitting, God, I know you know what to do better than I do, but please do something. The theologian Miroslav Wolf says it this way. By placing unattended rage before God, we place both our unjust enemy and our own vengeful self face to face with a God who loves and does justice. Hidden in the dark chambers of our hearts and nourished by the system of darkness, hate grows and seeks to infest everything with its hellish will to exclusion. In the light of the justice and love of God, however, hate recedes and the seed is planted for the miracle of forgiveness. In other words, if David is actually feeling this kind of judgment toward his enemy, if he's actually feeling like, I wish this would happen, God, the best place for it to be is in a prayer to God shared with community. Because David didn't just pray this to God in his own quiet secret chambers. For some reason, he ends up writing it and giving it to someone because we have it today. So there's some act of healing in the sharing of it. Because hidden is where it grows. In the light, it recedes. Anytime we honestly pray, we aren't just asking God to do something for us. And he answers it no matter what. You know this. God's not a genie. God's not a vending machine. That would make praying this kind of prayer dangerous and cruel. Because it's saying, whatever I ask God to do, he will do. Then this is dangerous and cruel. Rather, whenever we honestly pray, we expose our hearts to God. We expose, I have this anger and hatred within me, which allows him to work on us just as much as he might end up working outside of us by answering a prayer in his own love and justice. In verse 16, David gives his reasoning for the judgment that he's asking of God. All right. He says, for he never thought of doing a kindness, but he hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse, so let it come back on him. He didn't even like blessing, so let it be far from him. David's appealing to the fact that this person is acting against the grain of God's goodness and against the order of the world that God has made. And so David is just asking God to act according to God's own plan and purposes. Of course, as best as David can discern it. He's saying, God, this seems to be going exactly against how you said you want things to go. Change it. David's saying, he was cruel and oppressive, so may it be so to him. He cursed, so may he be cursed. He didn't bless, don't bless him. He was unjust, bring your justice upon him. 
He's asking God to right the wrongs. Then he says in verse 21, But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, delivered me. So David has made his case. He's made his case before God. He's expressed his anger and desire for judgment to God. And now he's leaving it in the hands of God, a God who he names as sovereign, as the only God who has the right to rule the world. And then look what happens next. Verse 22. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Look at the change that takes place from earlier on in the psalm. David moves from outwardly cursing his enemy to inwardly recognizing his own weakness and need. Don't miss this. It shows how there's almost always something underneath the anger. Anger is the tip of the iceberg. Again, in, in, Brene's, in Brene Brown's research on this, uh, over the last two decades, excuse me, she says that uh, she found that when participants in this research talked about being angry, the story never stopped there. They kept talking. Their narratives of anger unfolded into stories of betrayal, fear, grief, injustice, shame, vulnerability, and other emotions. So then she conducts interviews with 1,500 counselors and therapists. And she, after that, becomes certain that anger is what she calls an indicator emotion that can mask or make us unaware of other feelings that are out of reach in terms of language or that are much more difficult to talk about than anger. So anger often indicates that there's something else under the surface that is not really great to talk about. Right? We live in a world where it's much easier to say, I'm pissed off, than it is to say, I'm betrayed. I feel betrayed. I feel hurt. I feel lonely. And that's how David begins his prayer, right? God, I've been wronged. Oppose my enemy. Hurt them. Judge them. And then he ends up saying, for I am poor and needy. I'm wounded in my heart. Anger is often a presenting emotion, one that's easier to identify and safer to express culturally. But there's usually something lying underneath it. And that's what we see with David beginning in verse 22. There's so much wisdom here for us as we seek to be the people who can pray holistically. 
See, if we don't think it's okay to show God the tip of the iceberg, the anger, why would we think it's okay to show him all the stuff underneath it? All the scarier stuff that's hiding beneath the surface. See, anger can be a catalyst for a real transformative prayer life. When we give the first part to God, we might see what's really going on in us. And then say, God, please deal with that too. Please deal with that too. Verse 26, 27, and 31. Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your unfailing love. Let them know that it's your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. For he, God, stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. David appeals again to God and places justice and vengeance in God's hands alone. In this way, the Psalms of anger, they're essentially prayers of letting go. Prayers of relinquishment. These are not easy prayers. These are the like, not my will, but yours be done kind of prayers. Ultimately, this is where all prayer seeks to end up, right? Aligning with God's will and ways in the world. It's why Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. All prayer is a relinquishing, a letting go to God. But it cannot get there too soon. And I really want to make sure that we hear this. Prayer cannot prematurely get to that place. True relinquishment, sincere surrender to God, is often hard won. It's not easy. And one of the things that the Psalms teach us is that we don't get there by going around our anger. By somehow saying, God, send a helicopter, lift me out of this, I'm done. We have to go through it, presenting it all to God. You can't get around the wave, so you might as well ride it. There's no other path that leads to fullness of life. We learn this truth when we look at Jesus, too. There's no way around Good Friday. There's no jumping over Friday and Saturday and getting to Sunday, getting to the resurrection. Jesus says, unless the seed dies, there's no life from it. We all must bear our cross. That's where the life of God comes from. Anger is meant to be a catalyst. And that means that any actions that stem from it are a choice. Okay? Anger comes up. It's a catalyst. And we then have a choice to allow it to push us towards God or into sin. This is why Paul can say it's possible to be angry and not sin. This is what he tells us in Ephesians 4. Paul says, verse 25, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. 
right? God only meets us in our reality. And speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Then Paul's quoting something. In anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. In verse 26, he's actually quoting from the Psalms. It's Psalm 4, verse 4, that says, Be angry and do not sin, or in your anger do not sin. So yes, St. Paul's advice to us about anger comes from the Psalms. Because anger can be so strong and full-bodied, the safest place for it is in the presence of God. It's there we realize we can choose not to do violence. Either to someone else or to ourselves. That's how these cursing psalms actually rescue us from violence. Again, this is where uh, so much healing comes. I mean, most of us, and I put myself in here, there were times this week when I felt this way, but our first response to anger, often when someone wrongs us, is what? Put them in their place. Give them what they deserve. It's not, our first response is often not to go to God. Right? But the Psalms invite us not to act prematurely on anger or to deny it, but to place it before God. By praying our violence, by praying violent words, we are actually relinquishing that violence to God. We leave it in the hands of God. We, we relinquish our desire to actually do violence to actually put that person in their place. And this is where anger can also be a powerful catalyst for justice. Um, with God's help, our anger at injustice can actually fuel creative and life-giving attempts at joining with God in his work of renewal and restoration living our lives for the sake of others. And so you often hear in people who started different nonprofits or things like that, um, may have started with compassion, it may have started with anger. Anger at seeing, how can this be? And they let it turn to good by coming to God with it. All that's fine and good, right? But, but what about Jesus? What about that first question? Doesn't he say that we should love our enemies, that we should bless them and not curse them? Coming to a close here, Luke 6, verse 27. This is Jesus. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I mean, if we're honest, I don't know which verses are harder for us to hear. The angry psalm or these. 
But how on earth do you think <laughs> that we'll actually be able to love our enemies if we have unresolved anger right underneath the surface towards them? Buried in our hearts. We say, oh, I just have to love them, so I'll just say a nice thing. That kind of love of enemies is cheap and fake. That's like when a southerner dismissingly says, bless your heart. <laughs> you know what they mean is entirely different, right? That's not blessing your enemy. That's putting lipstick on a curse or some sugar in, in poison and handing it to you. There's no possibility of loving our enemies the way Jesus wants to without releasing and relinquishing our anger to God. It's in that relinquishing that we join with God in the garden in Gethsemane. We join with Jesus. There's no possibility of loving our enemies without uniting ourselves to the one who loved us when we were still his enemies. The cross of Christ is the ultimate act of relinquishing vengeance and justice to God. You know, Jesus could have called down legions of angels this is what he says, and he says, I could have called, you know, I could have called down legions of angels. He could have put the Jewish and Roman authorities in their place. He could have made a big old spectacle out of it. Crowds would have been cheering, going nuts. He could have given a sort of divine drop kick to anyone trying to stop him. But but instead, instead he ends up outstretched perhaps even naked, if not naked, barely closed, embarrassingly barely closed and vulnerable on a cross. A public display of powerlessness. And there he cries out a psalm, a lament psalm, channeling his despair and anger Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, which we'll get to in a few weeks. It's there that we are saved. Saved from our sins. Saved from hell. Saved from our need to control. Saved from our impulses to immediately act out of our anger. It's in the death of Christ that we find life. And so in his kingdom, we need not fear even our anger. Place it before him. Just like all of our lives can be a living sacrifice for him, so too our anger. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, there are things that are harder to pray. There are things that are harder to ask of you, Lord. Whether it's honestly expressing our anger or disgust at someone, or whether it's at the end of that prayer saying, not my will but yours be done. Lord, there are hard things to pray, but we want to be a people of prayer. We want to say like David, but I am a prayer. So Lord, would you in your kindness, in your graciousness, in your generosity, give us the courage to pray wholeheartedly to you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.